0: IFM 101.9 megahertz of life and good afternoon dear friends today we're going to talk a little bit about the Torah portion this week and its relevance and message to the current conditions the bizarre times we live in and if I could take this opportunity to remind everyone to please do what you can to curb this pandemic to mitigate the transmission of it by doing everything you can to Stay home when you don't have to go out And to be as careful outside as possible Wear your mask, do whatever you can to protect yourself and to protect others The Torah portion we read this week is the portion of Chukas Chukas literally means statutes, laws It's laws beyond our comprehension And like this pandemic that we cannot understand That's beyond our comprehension So is Chukas it is about the red heifer, the para duma. And it is a message to us that although we don't understand it, I think there's a profound message in the portion that reminds us who's boss, who's in charge of the world around us. And that's a message I want to look at in today's show, in our segment here on one, on soul to soul. And if you look at the portion this week, which I'll quickly just glance over the parsha, Besides for talking about the laws of the red heifer, we also encounter the death of Miriam and Aaron. And then, we also see when the Jews are in need of water, and God tells Moshe to speak to the rock. Instead, he strikes the rock. And here we see a profound message and lesson that we can learn from Moshe. Moshe was punished for striking the rock instead of speaking to it. Yet, some of our commentaries see in this the beauty of Moshe. He was willing to lose entering the land of Israel which was something you think for 40 years he's journeying with the Jews taking them to that destination to the land of Israel. Yet he was willing to risk that just to save face for his flock for the Jewish people. Because imagine had Moshe spoken to the rock, and the rock listens. Yet, how does that reflect on the stiff-necked nation he's leading who don't listen? So Moshe instead hits the rock. And then, of course, the water flows. But he is punished. He's banned from entering Israel. I think it's a very important message and lesson that all of us could learn from Moshe Rabbeinu about the sacrifice, the risks we take, what we do for others, especially during this pandemic. We think about not just ourselves. Moshe didn't think about himself. Yes, he would have loved to go to the land of Israel himself. But he was willing to risk that to protect others. What are we doing to protect others around us during this difficult time? And the portion continues with the story of Amalek battling the Jewish people. And with Edom and Moab, who refused to give us passageway into Israel. And the battle with Sichon and Og. But the portion, one after another, after each difficulty, we still are victorious. And that's the story of Jewish survival. We not only survive, but we thrive. And why is that? Because of the unique perspective that we take from the Torah and its messages. And I want to share with you one from this week's portion that I think will illustrate this idea. Because one of the strange episodes we read, in fact, in today's Hamish portion, because we know that the portions are divided by seven aliyahs on Shabbos. But the seven aliyahs that you have in the partial, we read one each day of the week. Today, chamishi we read about these poisonous snakes that attack the Jewish people in the desert. Not that they didn't earn it or deserve it, because sadly we vexed God once again, complaining and kvetching. So we were, we got our retribution, divine retribution. But of course we pleaded and begged with Hashem and seeking a cure, a vaccine, a treatment for the pandemic, the plague of the time. Hashem instructs Moshe to fashion a very unique, special healing instrument to take a pole and to place a snake or rather the form of a snake at the very top of it. And Moshe sculptures a snake of copper and he places this bronze snake on top of the pole and anyone who is afflicted with a snake bite would gaze onto the certain time image and they would be cured. Again, they would look up onto the snake image and then they would be cured. Now, I've written a short insight in the Jewish report this week where you could see this idea that I'd like to share with you now. And of course, it's interesting that according to many historians, this snake entwined rod is the emblem today of the medical profession that's fascinating maybe it's about their hope and prayer that their treatments work as well as the snake on the pole but the question is obvious what was the point of placing a snake on top of the pole to cure the Jews who were bitten if it was God who was healing them miraculously miraculously why look up at a copper snake on top of a pole? And the Talmud actually raises this question. The Gemara asks, but is the snake capable of determining the life and death? And the answer is of course, when we would gaze upward, it wasn't the snake, who was gazing up on the pole towards heaven, binding our hearts to Almighty God to our Father in heaven. That's what would bring the healing. It was fixing our eyes on the snake was not worth very much. That didn't bring cure. It was looking upward towards God. It was the relationship with God which brought the cure. But if so, why bother to carve out a copper snake in the first place? It only makes people feel, think that it's the copper snake that's performing the miracle of the healing. And so, stay tuned. We'll be back just now to discuss this and an important message and lesson that we can glean from this story. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. So the Gemara asks... Obviously, it can't be that the snake is healing them, but only the fact that they raise their eyes toward heaven, towards God. And that's what brought the healing to the people. So by looking towards Hashem, that relationship with God is what brought cure to anyone who is ill. But if so, why bother to carve out a copper snake in the first place? That can only make people feel... That it's the copper snake that's performing the miracle of healing, right? And in fact, this is exactly what happened. Many years later, the copper snake that Marsha made, it was actually preserved for centuries as a treatment to, it was a, a, a testament to that extraordinary event. But with the passage of time, its meaning became distorted and people began to say that the snake possessed powers of its own. And when it reached the point of becoming an image of idolatry, then King Chizkiyahu, who lived in the 6th century of before the common era, he destroyed the copper snake that was fashioned by Moshe, and was the end of that special copper snake. So it brings us back to the question, why ask people to look up at a man-made snake, which can only create room for theological error, By them deifying the snake rather than its creator. And another important question that we have to ask is the snake was the animal that caused all that harm in the first place. So healing it would seem would come from staying far away from serpents. Why in this case was the remedy from gazing at the very venomous creature that caused the damage to begin with? That's the question that I ask And in fact, Ramban, Nachmanides tells us that there was a miracle within a miracle. He says that the literal answer is, indeed, it was not enough to ask God to save them. Without that snake and the pole therapy, that played an important role. It was very instrumental. The people had to gaze on the snake and focus on the fact that only God, who created that snake in the first place, could transform that same venomous creature into a medium of healing. The people had to acknowledge that yes, they were bitten by a snake and, but it was not the snake itself. God's in control of the world. God's the one who created the snake. And therefore God isn't the one, God is the one who's responsible for a, a person's life and a person's death. And so you might be looking at a snake, but really you have to see beyond the snake. There's a deeper perspective that one has to realize that it's not the snake that brings life or death, but rather it is the Almighty, God Himself, the creator of the snake, the creator of life, who provides us our well-being, who takes care of us. So, I want to digress for a moment and share with you a story that happened 93 years ago in 1927. And my grandmother, who was about 15 years old at the time, remembers the story very, very well. Well, she's unfortunately passed away in 2004. But she would tell me that story with the memories of how it was when it happened. It was a time when Joseph Stalin, who was the new leader of Soviet Russia, after Lenin's death, and he embarked on his ruthless campaign to root out all religion from the USSR and to cut down mercilessly even the slightest opposition to his communist regime. There was such a brutality that was unparalleled among any tyrants before him. And during those 30 years of his reign of horror, he actually murdered more than 20 million of his own people. Some historians actually even put the number far higher. Jews and Judaism would be one of the primary targets of Stalin's regime of his campaign. And he set up special government organization called the Yvesectia. That was a Jewish KGB agency. And they were on the inside working to ensure that Russian Jewry with its millions would embrace the ethos of communism which was, so to say, introducing a paradise of bullets and gulags. Now, one of the great leading rabbis in Russia at that time was the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak and the 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe. And actually, tomorrow night on the 12th of Tammuz, besides for being a Hasidic festival in 1927, when the story came to its end, because he was acquitted of the charges that I'm about to tell you of. It was also his birthday. Tomorrow night, the 12th of Tammuz, Marx's birthday he was born in 1880 on the 12th of Tammuz, and actually passed away in 1950 in New York on the 10th of Shavuot. So the previous Rebbe spearheaded this underground network, a Jewish resistance to Stalin's ideological final solution. And with the assistance of his loyal army of Hasidim, they called themselves Armeya Admura. Armeya means the army. Admura is of the Rebbe. Admur is a acronym of four words. Adonenu, Morainu Verabenu. three words. It's a reference of, of respect of the Rebbe. And so this army, this r- army of, of rabbis and of Rebbitsons, and, and of non-rabbis and Rebbitsons, Chasidim, they created an underground network of bustling Jewish activities. And my father grew up in this network. He was born in Russia in the 1930s and experienced it and told me firsthand about that experience. And they created underground Jewish schools and clandestine schools and hidden mikvahs. There were so many different things. There was adult Torah education. There were yeshivas. There was printing of Jewish texts that were provided. And rabbis and rebetzins were given the opportunity, were given the task of teaching, of leading, but all underground, all undercover. And this was happening in the 1920s and 1930s, don't forget communism started in 1917. So already the rebbe Rashab, the fifth rebbe, who had to escape during the Bolshevik revolution from the town of Labavich in Belarusia in white Russia they had to move to a place called Rostov on the Don River and he passed away there in 1920 and his son the 5th Rebbe Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak took over and he built this massive network 600 Jewish underground schools throughout the Soviet Union and many of them lasted only a few weeks or months when the KGB the secret Russian police discovered one school. The children were expelled. The teachers may have been arrested, sometimes sent off to far off Siberia punished, but there was always somebody to fill their shoes, to take their place, to, to move into a new location in another place. And my father would describe to me oftentimes it was in a cellar, it was in a rooftop, it was in an apartment. And they knew they would be busted. They knew that at some point later they would be caught. A couple of weeks ago, I'll share with you some of the stories, my father's first yard site and in 1941, he was a young boy, four years old, they had to move on from there and they went off to a place called Samarkand, which is out in Uzbekistan. But I'm gonna go backwards to 1927, 14 years earlier. The previous Rebbe paid the ultimate price for his work. He was brutally taken from his home one midnight in June he was incarcerated in one of the most horrendous prisons in Soviet Russia and he was given a capital sentence. That death sentence, with time, with tremendous pressure from other countries such as the United States and government officials and politicians and diplomats, was able to convert it into a into a 10 year exile sentence. And millions of people actually died in those sentences because it was unbearable conditions. They were sent off to cold places like Siberia or the Rebbe's father who passed away in exile in Kazakhstan. So people were sent off in these very harsh, difficult conditions. But ultimately it was then further converted to a three-year exile sentence and finally it was changed to a ten-day exile sentence in the city of Kastrama. And tomorrow night marks the anniversary 93 years ago in 1927 on the 12th day of Tammuz, Yud-Bes Tammuz, This Shabbos, exactly 93 years ago that the Rebbe was set free. And this was literally a miracle. Now far less significant activists in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union were murdered for far smaller crimes. The fact That the Rebbe stood up as a lone figure to this mighty, brutal and ruthless empire. To this power of the communists. And he survived it. And he sowed the seeds for Jewish life in the Soviet Union for the next seven decades until the fall of communism was nothing short of an outstanding miracle. In fact... Many of you may have listened in last Sunday. The Chief Rabbi of Russia, Rabbi Bero Lazar, was interviewed by Rabbi Masinter on Chabad of Zoom. And hundreds of people participated. It was one of our most popular Zoom events. You can watch it on our Chabad South Africa Facebook page. So many people participated, and listening to his story about how Yiddishkeit survived in Russia throughout communism. And then in the 1980s, he was going there as a rabbinical student, and finally, in 1990, with the fall of communism in 91, he and his wife moved there permanently. And the Renaissance, the revival of Yiddishkeit in Russia since then, is unbelievable. But it's the havoc that was caused from all this. We don't know how many people hid their identity and don't know whether they're Jewish or not. The, the, the whole story itself was a miracle. And you just think about this, even today, The world is still intimidated by Russia. People dare to stand up to the government. You know, Putin runs a very tight ship, to put it mildly. But in those days, no one could even think of in any way standing up to, no one could dream of a resistance. Yet, wonder of wonders, one lone Hasidic Rebbe Stood up to the most evil and cruel superpower in that time, and he won the miracle of the Rebbe's liberation, guaranteed the future of Judaism in Russia, and obviously the very continued existence of Chabad Lubavitch as a movement. In a sense, if not for Yudbeis Tamas, if not for this day, who knows where Chabad would even be today? And indeed, the Rebbe actually mentioned that in one of his Fabrengans because the previous Rebbe did not have any successor at that time. And who knows what would have been. But just to think what's going on, this whole entire story was indeed a very miraculous event. And, and if you want, you could read the diary, you could read the diary of the previous Rebbe where he describes in great detail All of that entire story, the whole episode and all the details of what happened to him then, in there's a book in English called A Prince in Prison, where you can get all the details if you want to read it. If you want, you can go to chabadzadafika.org and you could actually find the whole story on our website. So you're welcome to do that and read the story in all the detail. It makes for a great read and a fascinating story. Now, coming out of prison... The Rebbe wrote all the details of what happened to him. And in this dramatic and historic first-person description, he graphically documents the cold truth behind the cynical Stalinist facade of religious tolerance that they uh, ostensibly had. He described the midnight arrest, the intimidation, the interrogation, the incarceration without trial, the humiliation of prison routine, the torture of dissidents, the firing squads that were cutting down countless innocent men and women. You could, he describes hearing it all. It's a chilling and remarkable account. And I think it's a must read if you really want over this weekend. Print it up, read it over Shabbos. It gives you an inkling to understand that dark era in history. And at one point in his account, which he wrote in Hebrew and Yiddish, he describes a complete physical and psychological subjugation of the prisoners in his prison cell. It was called Spalerke, it was in Leningrad, today in in uh, St. Petersburg, I think it's St. Petersburg. And just to share with you one excerpt, he says, since the cells have no locks, it is only routine, the routine announcements that give us a rough notion of the time. In summer, prisoners are awakened 6.30 in the morning, bread is distributed 7.30, and lights out are at 10.30 p.m. The message is clear, it's a prison. And a Soviet prison. They don't want you to feel any sense of freedom. You're made to feel that you own nothing. You have no rights, not even the right of knowing what time it is. And he continues in his diary, he says, a fascinating thing. The Medrash teaches, from where did Moshe Rabbeinu, When he was on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights after giving the Torah, after getting the Torah. When it was day, how did he know it was day when it was night? When he heard the angel saying "Kadosh," he knew that it was day. And when he heard the angel saying Baruch then he knew it was night. And that's how this chapter of his diary ends. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Let's go back to the question asked earlier about the snakes. And I'm out of the story for a moment of the Rebbe and his experience. And I want to share with you a fascinating insight about the snakes and that story of the Torah portion this week. And we know that all Torah stories capturing the timeless journeys of the human psyche. It's also a metaphor for all the snakes in our own lives. Have you ever been bitten by a venomous snake? Poisoned by harmful forces? Burned by perhaps difficulties, challenges in life? Difficult situations? I know many people these days are struggling with this whole coronavirus and we're Feeling somewhat demoralized. What can we do? What, what's the deeper meaning to these struggles and challenges, to the suffering? How do some people know how to accept affliction with love, with agony, with peace? Especially when we look around what's going on. And so, I don't have the answers really to these questions. But one perspective I think we could glean from the snakes, the serpents in this week's Torah portion. God tells Moshe, make a serpent and place it on top of the pole. Whoever gets bitten should look at it and will live. What's the key to healing? The Torah is suggesting is not to flee from the cause of the suffering, but to embrace it, to gaze at it, to confront it. Don't run away from the snake, look at it. But there's one qualification. You must look up to the snake you have to peer into the reality of the snake above, on top of the elevated pole, not on the serpent crawling here below. The famous Austrian-British philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein, he considered by many to be one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. He once said that his aim as a philosopher was to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. The fly keeps banging its head against the wall of of the bottle in vain to get out. And the more it tries, the more it fails. Until it drops from exhaustion. The one thing that it forgot to do is to look up. To look towards the sky. Every experience in life can be seen from two dimensions. You could see it from the concrete earthly reality or from a higher, more sublime vantage point. And then you could appreciate its meaning from a different, deeper perspective. Because there's the snake down here, and there's the very same snake up there. I could experience my challenges, my struggles and difficulties in the way that they are in my life. But I could also look at these very same struggles with a more elevated point of view. The circumstances might not change, but their meaning and significance surely will change. From the realistic perspective, these challenges, the curveballs, the the painful setbacks in life, they could throw us into despair, they could drain us of our sap. But from the higher perspective, when we look up heavenward, those very same the very same reality. Every challenge actually contains seeds of rebirth. So within every crisis, if you look deeper, you find the glorious possibility of a new, deeper discovery. I know in my life, I have found, and I'm sure many of you have as well, that certain events that at the time were the most painful, difficult moments, but also in hindsight, in retrospect, they caused us to grow. They helped us make the difficult but necessary decisions. Sometimes we're forced to ask, who am I, what really matters to me? And they move us from the surface to the depths where we discover the strength we didn't even know we had. And they give us a certain clarity of purpose that till this point we perhaps lacked. But for this, we have to look upward. When faced with a snake, with a challenge, many people look at their right or to their left, and they they fight or they cave in. But there's another path, look upward, see the snake from the perspective above. See it from the perspective above. And in that upward gaze, you'll find a new sense of healing. The questions might become the very answers, the problems may become the solutions. The venom could become the cure. You think about vaccines that are being searched out now for coronavirus. What does the vaccine contain? Small quantities of the bacteria itself, of the virus, and that stimulates production of antibodies in the blood. It's the same idea that Marsha taught us. The source of the affliction itself can become the remedy. So if we view it from that perspective, then every fault, every setback, every shortcoming we have is the potential for a new self-discovery. Failure is the potential for real success. Holes in a marriage might be the beginning of a renovation to recreate a far deeper relationship. The end of an era is always the beginning of a new one. Pain is the springboard for deeper love and frustration is the mother of a new awareness. And we have to be aware of these things, we have to make ourselves aware of this, we have to inculcate this perspective in our life. In the Torah portion, we're gonna read soon, it says, God is testing you. What does it mean? God is, the word used there, it means, nisayom could mean a test, but it could also mean an elevation. Every test, every challenge, every difficulty is an invitation, an opportunity for an elevation, for growth in the story of the serpents in our parsha, Here we see, he said, "sim, sim al neis, to put it up on a pole, again, to elevate our perspective. That's the idea that we're being told to be aware of here. And this is how we are to deal with the dilemmas, the challenges that we face, the pain and suffering. Some philosophies, perhaps practice denial. They ignore the reality of earth. Suffering isn't real. Pain is an illusion. The whole world is fake. It's all fake. Others, on the other hand, go to the opposite extreme. They only see the reality on the ground. They deny the purpose or meaning of life. If atheism is real, suffering makes sense. Judaism invites us on the road less traveled. The genius of the Jewish people and what allowed us to survive and thrive was our insistence that neither, that both those paths aren't right. Not to deny the darkness and not to deny the light. Our perspective is that we have to be real but recognize the reality comes from God. And so we take the darkness and transform it into light. Because on the deepest level, the snake below is waiting to be redefined, to find, transformed into the snake above. So, this is perhaps the meaning, you know when Yaakov, back in Beresha, we were reading, he's far from home and he's wrestling with an unknown, unnamed adversary, from night until the break of day. And the mysterious man, Names Yaakov. It causes him to limp. And yet, at the end of that difficult, struggling night, a night to remember, Yaakov says, the strange, he says to the stranger, to the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. Bless me? Is this how you bid farewell to a man who tried to destroy you? But Yaakov was teaching us the secret of resilience. That we have, that unique ability to say to every single crisis that we face, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I know that deep down, there is something within this that will elevate me. What's the silver lining? That's going to bring me to a higher place, to climb the mountain leading to the truth, so that I could come out stronger, wiser and blessed. So if I go back to the story in 1927 of the previous Rebbe, when the Rebbe was sitting in Spalerka Leningrad, in that hellhole of a prison. And he didn't look to the right or the left, because if he would have, he would have seen thick walls and mighty gates. The spear and a sense of defeat might have conquered him. In a Soviet prison cell with no windows, not even a clock to tell the time, he would have felt stripped from his humanness, his dignity, his very sense of selfhood. But the Rebbe did not look to the right or to the left. He would have seen nothing but venomous serpents determined to bite him and to poison him. Instead, you know what the Rebbe did? The Rebbe looked up. And that's the message to us. The Rebbe looked up and what did he see? He saw like we said, Moshe on the mountain cradled by the divine learning Torah with God, not knowing the difference between day and out, without the angels giving him the information. The Rebbe wasn't naive. He knew exactly where he was and what type of people he was dealing with. But his guiding principle on life was this reality of every moment, of every experience, the very existence of God. And that means every moment and in every experience, even through the difficult time we're going through now, we have to see the higher meaning, the purpose, we have to find the opportunity that is within this entire time with everything that's going on. And perhaps I could take you to another great hero who survived those difficult times, and I'm referring to Viktor Frankl. He was a famous Jewish Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, student of Sigmund Freud, and he was sent to Auschwitz. And he describes in his diary, he writes, he was the founder I think of Logotherapy. He says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They They may have been few in numbers, but they offer sufficient proof That everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. I just want to read a little bit from his diary. He says, we stumbled on in the darkness, ever big stones, over big stones and through large puddles, along the road leading from the camp, the accompanying guards kept shouting at us, and driving us with the butts of the rifles. Anyone with very sore feet supported himself on his neighbor's arm. Hardly a word was spoken. The icy wind did not encourage talk. Hiding his mouth behind his his upturned collar, the man marching next to me whispered suddenly, If our wives could see us now, I do hope they are better off in their camps and don't know what's happening to us. That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind. And as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said. But we both knew each of us was thinking of his wife, occasionally I looked at the sky where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it without an un- with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look, real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. And he goes on, but the point is, Viktor Frankl really shared with us this very idea of seeing the opportunity, even the most difficult moments. So, I want to conclude with reflecting on the Rebbe sitting there in that situation, in the Spralerka prison, but thinking of Moshe's pole in the Parsha this week, with the serpent on top. The very same snake, that was biting people below when looking heavenward becomes a source of feeling and strength and that was the idea the idea was not to look at the snake per se but to see deeper beyond the snake you look up at the pole, look towards heaven that's the message and lesson that I think we could all glean from the portion this week and I think it's a very powerful lesson for all of us that when we face these situations the venomous snakes of our lives when we're literally crushed by the financial situation, by so much of what's going on. But we could reflect on a deeper message and hopefully find meaning and purpose for ourselves and for those around us.